this Christmas feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in store and online at arnott's.ie Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Sydney River is a community on Cape Breton Island at the east end of Nova Scotia, Canada. The island had two coal mines that drove the economy until they were shut down in 2001. The area is also largely settled by Scottish immigrants, so it's one of the few areas in North America where people speak the Gaelic language. Derek Wood thought that he had found an easy way to make some money. When the plan started to go south and the only way to get away with it would be to kill people, he didn't give it a second thought. This is Monsters. At just after midnight on May 7, 1992, Donna Warren and Arlene McNeil were finishing up their night shifts and ready to go home. As they exited an employee room in the basement of the restaurant, they ran into three intruders. One of the men was wearing a Halloween mask, another one they didn't recognize, but a third was their co-worker, Derek Wood. Donna immediately assumed that her co-worker was playing a prank on her. She said, what's going on? Not wanting to admit that they had scared her, a little angry that Derek had brought people into the restaurant after it was closed. Derek raised a gun and pulled the trigger. Arlene was the first to be shot. She fell to the floor and blood began pooling around her. The man in the mask pointed a knife at Donna and told her to stay put. Upstairs in the restaurant's kitchen, Neil Burroughs was cleaning. There was a steel door that closed off the basement from the kitchen and Neil could not have heard the gunshot or Donna's scream. He was scrubbing a sink when Derek came up behind him and shot him in the head. Neil was disoriented and didn't understand what was happening. The man in the mask stabbed him in the neck. As Neil struggled to figure out what was going on, one of them hit him on the forehead with a shovel handle, knocking him to the ground. Neil writhed on the floor as Derek shot him two more times in the head, finally killing him. Once Derek had cleared the upstairs, he went back to the basement where he forced Donna upstairs to the manager's office and demanded she open the safe. Once she got it open, Derek shot her in the back of the head and began digging through the safe where he found $2,017.27. He put the money in a bag and shot Donna one more time in the head before leaving the office. At the same moment, Jimmy Fagan had stepped out of a cab, arriving at his early morning shift at the Sydney River McDonald's. When the store was closed, he had to go around to the back of the restaurant and press a button to ring another employee to let him in. He hit the button just before Derek opened it and was fleeing the scene of the crime he had just committed. 
As the two accomplices ran toward the door, Derek had seen Jimmy and yelled, Shoot him! The man in the mask now had the gun and shot Jimmy once in the forehead. His body fell into the doorway, so once the three attackers left, the door hit Jimmy's legs and wouldn't close all the way. Daniel McVicker, the cab driver who had just dropped off Jimmy, heard what sounded like a pop, maybe a firecracker. Then he glanced back at the McDonald's where he saw multiple people running away. His curiosity got the better of him and he backed up, pulling back into the restaurant's parking lot. As he rounded the back of the building, he could see Jimmy's feet sticking out of the doorway. He radioed to his dispatch that he heard a shot and his last fare was now injured. The dispatcher called the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Daniel was just about to park and check on Jimmy when other cabbies began telling him over the radio not to get out of his cab and not to even park his vehicle. The attacker could still be in the area. They urged him to wait for the RCMP to arrive, which he did. He drove around the building, every second feeling like an hour as he waited for help to arrive. Derek Wood had only recently started working in McDonald's and was still considered the new guy. Derek was born in Sydney, Nova Scotia, but after his parents divorced, his mother moved to British Columbia. He and his father lived in a poorer area of town which attracted bullies to him while he was young. Derek was said to be shy and awkward throughout his teen years. He never graduated high school, opting instead to join the workforce. This is what brought him to McDonald's. The previous year, he had begun training with the Cape Breton Militia District, but once got heavily intoxicated and began threatening to kill himself. He was questioned by senior officers and dismissed the incident, but they chose to discharge him. Once Derek began working at McDonald's, he quickly realized there was a flaw in their security. There was a conveyor belt that they used to bring deliveries into the restaurant. Not long after Derek was hired, the conveyor belt broke down and they had to prop open the back door of the basement and bring deliveries in that way. This situation introduced Derek to the somewhat hidden back door. Derek knew that there was a safe in the manager's office and believed that he could prop open the back door so that a couple of friends could come in and rob the place. Derek believed that the safe would be their jackpot, loaded with money in the sum of anywhere between $80,000 and $200,000, depending on the source. 18-year-old Daryl Muse was a lot like Derek. He dropped out of high school and was drifting aimlessly through life. He had known Derek for a few years and they had attended high school together. 23-year-old Freeman McNeil, no relation to Arlene, had graduated high school and had spent a year in teacher's college. He eventually gave up on that path and began hanging out with Derek and Darren. The three had actually talked about robbing the McDonald's before Derek even started working there. Now they had themselves an inside man. The three young men all felt like the system was against them, so they might as well take what they wanted. The accomplices fine-tuned their plan. Freeman would drive the car and wait in it so they could escape quickly. Derek would prop open the door so Darren could get inside and make his way to the office. They also planned to bring a fourth guy to wait at the basement door to make sure nobody could escape. That plan would have Darren wearing a mask and he would go upstairs and demand the safe be opened. Freeman and the other accomplice wouldn't be seen and Derek would just prop open the basement door so nobody would know he was involved. They wanted to rob the store without harming anybody, but they wanted to bring a gun just in case. Freeman stole a 22 caliber pistol from his girlfriend's father. They put the plan into action on April 30th, but the fourth man didn't show up. 
They talked it over and decided to just move forward without someone guarding the basement door. On May 6th, Freeman dropped Derek off at work, and Derek entered the McDonald's with the pistol and a handful of ammunition in a leather fanny pack. After he changed into his uniform, he shoved the clothes and the fanny pack into his backpack. Then he stuck the backpack in the back door of the basement to keep it open. Freeman picked up Darren, and they both put a second set of clothes on over what they were wearing. These clothes would be stripped off and dumped after the crime, so that any fibers left on the scene, or anything picked up on their clothes at the scene, wouldn't be traced back to them. After his shift, Derek stayed late and helped Arlene do inventory, most likely in an effort to help her get done and leave so there would be less people in the store when it was robbed. Derek didn't realize that Arlene always waited for Donna to get off work and they left together. The plan was for Derek to call a payphone outside of a Tim Hortons where Darren and Freeman were waiting. Then they would come to the door that was propped open and commit the robbery, making Derek seem like a random victim. Unfortunately, there was something wrong with the phone because he never got an answer and the other men didn't hear it ring. Derek changed out of his uniform, grabbed the fanny pack and stuck his backpack back in the jam of the door in the basement. Derek walked across the street to the Tim Hortons and was upset that they hadn't answered the phone. The accomplices told him the phone never rang. Since Derek had propped the door open before he left, they were still on to complete the robbery. Freeman drove around behind the McDonald's to a gravel road in a small residential area and the three walked to the back of the restaurant. They entered the door that Derek had propped open and closed it behind them. After five minutes of circling the lot, another cab driver, John McGinnis, arrived at the McDonald's to assist Daniel. As he pulled into the parking lot, he noticed a brown Chevy Impala speeding away. The cabbies parked and approached Jimmy as he was still laying in the doorway. As they gently rolled him over, they could hear him moaning, and they saw the bullet wound in his head. Daniel ran back to his cab to report that his fare had been shot in the head, and to tell the police and ambulance to hurry up. John heard a phone ringing from inside the restaurant, so he ran inside and made his way to the office where he found Donna, slumped onto the floor, kind of leaning against the wall. He answered the phone, but all he heard was clicking, so he hung up and checked on Donna. The police had gotten reports of gunshots at the McDonald's and were trying to call the office to validate the situation. Donna was just barely breathing, but her head was at a weird angle, so John pulled her away from the wall in an effort to help her be able to breathe better, and then decided to go let Daniel know he had found another victim. On his way out, he passed the kitchen and saw Neil on the floor, surrounded by a large pool of blood. He checked for a pulse and got none, so he continued on his way outside. As he passed the door to the basement, he could hear a gurgling sound, but suddenly realized that the killers could still be in the building, so he hurried outside. Arlene was in the basement, clinging to life. RCMP Corporal Kevin Cleary arrived at the McDonald's soon after the cab company made the call. He was calm, assuming it was another false alarm. The Sydney River McDonald's had a major road on either side of it, and they frequently got reports of gunshots that turned out to be cars backfiring. Corporal Cleary pulled up next to Daniel, who was now sitting in his car and was briefed on the situation. Cleary immediately approached the back door where Jimmy was bleeding out, and as soon as he got to the door, John ran out of the building, yelling, They're still in there! There's bodies everywhere, and they're still in there! Cleary pulled his service weapon from his holster and radioed in that he was going to go into the building. Another RCMP constable was about to pull up, so he waited until they could go in together. 
Inside, Constable Henry Jansen went down the stairs where he found Arlene. She was trying to breathe, but she was lying on her stomach with a pool of blood around her face. Jansen rolled Arlene over so she could breathe easier and radioed in his discovery. Cleary went through the kitchen, checking Neil for a pulse and not finding one. He cleared the dining area, and as he was headed back toward the basement stairs, he found the manager's office and found Donna on the floor. A bullet wound to her right eye, and her eye was black. It was surrounded with gunshot stippling, something that's left on the skin around a gunshot wound when the victim's been shot at close range. He checked her for a pulse and couldn't find one. He also found a crumpled $5 bill and some change on the floor. Back outside, two ambulances had arrived, and with the help of multiple cab drivers who had arrived on the scene, they both got Jimmy and Arlene into the ambulances and on their way to the hospital. We'll be right back. At Bellywelly, they bake delicious, gluten-free, dairy-free, low-sugar, and certified FODMAP bars that take the BS out of IBS. If you suffer from stomach issues such as bloating, constipation, or IBS, these delicious soft-baked treats are for you. Low FODMAP will become the next big diet in 2022. It's the diet for anyone with gut symptoms like I mentioned. Try the first soft-baked low FODMAP brownies. Start a gut-healthy breakfast routine in 2022. These bars come in a variety of flavors, like cinnamon swirl, birthday cake, blueberry muffin, fudge brownie, and lemon white chocolate. They have 500 million CFU probiotics per bar. They're gluten-free, vegan, certified low FODMAP, have 3 grams of fiber, and are delicious. Go to www.bellywelly.com and use code MONSTERS30 to unlock a 30% discount. That's B-E-L-L-I-W-E-L-L-I dot com and use code MONSTERS30 for a 30% discount. 22-year-old Donna Warren worked as the manager of McDonald's while she saved money to go to law school. She was also taking courses that she thought might help her out in her career. She had recently graduated from a radio and television program she had enrolled in to help gain communication skills. She was one of two victims to be pronounced dead at the scene. She had been shot once in the back of the head, which is believed to have not killed her, so she was shot again through the right eye. 29-year-old Neil Burroughs was a husband and a father. He worked at McDonald's as a maintenance worker and covered the night shift while his wife worked during the day as a hairdresser. They didn't make a lot of money, but it was enough to support their family and live in a community they loved. He was also pronounced dead at the scene, being shot once directly in the ear before being stabbed in the neck. He had fought with everything he had to not leave his wife and son, but after hitting him with a shovel handle, Derek shot him once more right above his right eye and then again in the back of the head. 27-year-old Jimmy Fagan still lived with his parents and had begun working at his brother's landscaping company the previous year, but the work thinned out in the winter, so Jimmy took a night job doing maintenance at McDonald's. Jimmy figured he didn't have much longer before the weather cleared enough for him to go back to working outside. Jimmy was shot once in the head and was rushed to the hospital, but he ended up succumbing to his injury. 20-year-old Arlene McNeil was just working at McDonald's to save up money to go to college. She was thinking about earning a degree in business administration, but wasn't entirely sure yet. She was shot once in the face and a bullet fragment had ricocheted off bone and entered her frontal lobe. Surgeons had managed to save her life, but she was in a coma and they weren't sure if she would ever wake up. By the time Jimmy and Arlene had made it to the hospital, Derek, Darren, and Freeman had made it to their parked car and taken off. 
Freeman ran into the ditch and tossed the shovel handle that he had used to hit Neil. Then he jumped in the Impala and took off. Derek suddenly remembered that he had left his backpack by the door of the basement. They had to go back and get it or else it would point investigators straight to him. They thought they could also go in and make sure Arlene was dead. When they approached the restaurant and were about to pull into the parking lot, they saw Daniel McVicker circling the lot in his cab and decided to get the hell out of there. The speeding in Paula caught the attention of John McInnes as he was entering the McDonald's parking lot. A few blocks away, Derek had an idea and told Freeman to let him out of the car. Derek needed a reason why his backpack was there, so he ran to a 24-hour convenience store and frantically asked them to use the phone. He called the police and reported the shooting. He was now going to take on the role of an employee who was able to get out of the restaurant and call for help. The operator told Derek that they already had people on the way, but then Derek called the RCMP directly and told a constable that he had been out back smoking, setting himself up to further explain that he used his backpack to prop the door open, and he heard a gunshot so he ran. The constable took down Derek's information and told him to go home for now and they would contact him. At the time, the constable was manning the phones and the radio, and there was so much going on that the best thing would be for Derek to go somewhere safe so he could be interviewed later. Derek wasn't quite sure what to do, so he started walking to Freeman's house. Freeman and Darren had parked their car not far from Freeman's house and put all of the extra clothes they were wearing into a duffel bag. They hid the bag and the spent shell casings in the woods and then drove to a different wooded area. There, they emptied everything else out of the car that could connect them to the crime. They threw a bunch of items from the McDonald's into a nearby creek. It included a cash box from the safe, little red pouches with gift certificates inside, some financial paperwork out of the safe, and two knives. The current quickly whisked them away. When the two men were done dumping evidence, Freeman dropped Darren off at a convenience store that also had video poker. Now that Darren had some cash, he could kill time gambling until his father was awake. Freeman went to his girlfriend's house and went to sleep. Derek eventually walked back to the convenience store, but by now, authorities had told any 24-hour businesses not to let anyone in until they had cleared the area. Without being able to enter the store, Derek walked over to one of the constables manning a roadblock. He identified himself as an employee who was outside when the shooting started, and he ran to call the police. Soon, he was picked up by a constable and taken in for questioning. The first thing the constable noticed was a cut on Derek's hand, and when he asked about it, Derek claimed he had cut his hand a few days ago while opening a can, but the experienced officer knew that the blood around it was fresh. In an interrogation room, Derek explained that he had finished his shift but stayed behind to help Arlene with inventory. After that, he changed his clothes and then propped the back door open to have a cigarette. It was then that he heard a gunshot and a scream and said it sounded like Donna, so he ran off. The investigators were not easily fooled. They questioned Derek on why he had to go through the trouble of propping a door open to smoke outside if he was able to smoke in the restaurant. This incident happened long before many businesses started banning smoking inside. What Derek didn't know is that the sticky basement floor did a really good job of leaving footprints. It was clear that multiple people had recently come into the basement through the same back door. How could the killers come into the restaurant through the same door Derek was smoking at? It was also a series of two doors. 
The door that Derek had propped open was actually the inside door, but then there was an outer door that could only be locked or unlocked from the inside. That door was locked when police got there. If Derek was outside smoking and he ran off, there was no way he would have been able to lock the door. At about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, about 12 hours after the murders, Derek was placed under arrest for two murders, two attempted murders, and a robbery. Not long after Derek's arrest, Freeman was interviewed by investigators. Police had found that Derek also called Freeman's house after he had called the police from the convenience store. Freeman was completely calm and cooperative with investigators. He said he had given Derek a ride to work and told him to call him if he needed a ride home, but that he didn't see him again. Derek had called his mother's house after his shift, but it turned out that Freeman was at his girlfriend's house. Derek had exercised his right to talk to a lawyer and a public defender advised him to remain silent. Unlike in the U.S., police in Canada are able to question you without a lawyer present, just as long as you've been advised by one. Whether you follow their advice is up to you. After Derek was done with his lawyer, when investigators continued questioning him, he remained silent for a few hours, but eventually the detectives brought up Arlene. Gasping for air in a pool of her own blood, and Derek began to break. He asked to speak to his lawyer again, telling investigators, I don't know where the gun is, but let me call my lawyer and I'll talk. Unfortunately, when the lawyer left the interview room, he informed the detectives that Derek would remain silent. Their arrest of Derek was a bit of a bluff, and without any direct evidence against him, they had to let him go. At the same time, a local had come forward and named three other men as being responsible for the McDonald's murders. What police didn't know at the time was that the woman was mentally ill, and despite her story perfectly fitting the timeline, she made it all up. All three men were arrested and interrogated, but they all had alibis that checked out. A search of their homes and vehicles turned up no evidence that they were involved in the crime and they were eventually released. In the days following the murders, Freeman and Darren were seen spending more money than they usually had. They had split the robbery money between them, not offering any to Derek, though he never asked about it. Darren hid some of his money in the mud in a pond. About that same time, a fisherman found a metal cash box with a McDonald's logo on it and turned it into the RCMP. With the creek being near Freeman's house, they began to think that that was too much of a coincidence for him to not have been involved. Investigators searched the creek and found wads of papers as well as the pouches with the gift certificates. When they brought a search dog out, he found one of the knives which had gotten caught up on the bank of the creek. Authorities had gone back to investigating Derek and now added Freeman and Darren to the mix. Freeman had been called by Derek and lived near the location where evidence was found. Darren was said to be with Freeman the night of the murders. Investigators brought Darren in and questioned him, trying to make him take a polygraph, but he refused. Eventually, he decided he would try to get himself out of trouble by agreeing to the polygraph test. Like many other criminals, he probably believed it would look good to cooperate, but he failed the test. The following day, Freeman was brought in for a polygraph test and immediately began turning on Derek and Darren. He claimed that they committed the crime and he had only dropped them off. The same day, the fourth man who was supposed to guard the door, Greg Lawrence, told police that he knew about the botched robbery and that included their pre-planning meetings, which were led by Freeman. 
about a week after the murders in McDonald's, Derek Wood, Freeman McNeil, and Darren Muse were arrested and charged with murder, attempted murder, and robbery. Once Derek was back in an interview, presented with the evidence against him, he finally confessed to his crimes and told the investigator where they would find the gun and the shovel handle. Derek went to trial first, where he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder for Donna and Neil, the attempted murder of Arlene, the unlawful confinement of Donna, and robbery. He pleaded not guilty, but was found guilty on all counts. He was sentenced to multiple life sentences, plus 10 years for the robbery, but he would be eligible for parole after 25 years, because Canada. During Darren Muse's trial, he claimed that he stabbed Neil Burroughs in the neck in an attempt to end his suffering. Nobody bought his bullshit, and he was also found guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison, with parole eligibility after 20 years. Freeman McNeil was also found guilty on all counts, one being for the murder of Jimmy Fagan. He was sentenced to life in prison with parole eligibility after 25 years. Arlene McNeil did wake up from the coma, but she was disabled for the rest of her life. She died in August of 2008. Darren Muse was released on parole in 2012, and Freeman McNeil was granted escorted absences from prison in 2016, and then granted the ability to leave the prison unsupervised for up to 24 hours once a month. The parole board said they're working to assist Freeman with personal growth to lead to a smoother transition into society when he's released. Derek Wood has been denied parole. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Stream the biggest movies and TV shows for free on Pluto TV. Watch movies like Titanic and G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra, plus TV shows like CSI and Star Trek The Next Generation. Starting this month, check out the 24-7 Stargate channel exclusively on Pluto TV, plus hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows absolutely free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start watching today. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's no big deal. 
What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in store and online at arnott's.ie. Thoga erid chansig poshtiam fluo oil agus a thoig dini fasta. Rod a jetak a vay in a hushkinish kumkushig. Thogat poshtiam ito gavlin agus shachmlin a jeg dish in an an vaccine flu shrona oil serenashka. Is balak savolja agus evartok a thorn sock in either cushions. Kum badlish an quidj elegant tailuk. Jane quinn a little hook dork in her alta, no little foot the gear. Tello olisher foil like hsc punkai tol slash flu. Oh, I'm an ox, now she's a slancher.